Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The crisis in Yemen is compounded by the odd circumstances of Yemen's currency, the rial. Yemen has two rival central banks. In the north of the country, where Houthi rebels ousted the internationally recognized government, there is the central bank in the capital, Sana'a. In the south of the country, the internationally recognized government set up a new central bank in the city of Aden. These banks have their own priorities and fiscal policies, and were set up in part to help defeat the other and control the Yemeni rial. The result has been runaway inflation, particularly in the south, and it's getting worse. The southern rial has lost a third of its value since January compared to the U.S. dollar, exceeding at 1.1,000 rial to the dollar. In the north, the figure was around 600 rial to the dollar, still very high. The constant devaluing of the rial is having a major impact on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is already the worst in the world. The cost of food is increasingly out of reach for ordinary Yemenis, where millions are on the brink of famine. On the line with me to explain how Yemen came to have two rival central banks and the impact this rivalry is having on the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is Anel Shiline, research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We discuss how the central bank rivalry fits into larger conflict dynamics in Yemen and what the international community can do to revive diplomacy to help end this crisis. I do think the situation of Yemen's two central banks has a good deal of explanatory power, and a big thank you to Anel Shiline for coming on the podcast to discuss that with me. As always, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. And now here is Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The, the story of the central bank's in Yemen is a microcosm of the com competition for authority in Yemen more broadly. Um, so the, the history of how this happened was that uh, in, in 2014, when the Houthis took over the capital city of Sana'a and President Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi 
had to flee, the Houthis seized control of the central bank. And around two years later in 2016, President Hadi moved the central bank headquarters to Aden. He did this from Saudi Arabia, where he has been based in Riyadh since he fled uh, Yemen in at the end of 2014. And so essentially what, what that meant was you still had the, the individuals based in Sana'a who were trying to run the Sana'ani central bank, essentially, under, under the control of the Houthis. And then you had actually the funds, national reserves, being transferred to Aden, but in a context where they didn't necessarily have the, the staffing on hand yet or the, the equipment even on hand yet. So they kind of had to start from scratch. You know, that's, that's already now several years in the past. Um, so more recent developments were things like the, the Adani central bank had started to print new currency because Yemen's currency was sort of old and falling apart. And the decision was made by the Aden central bank to, as, as governments do, to start issuing new currency. And also in order to meet the needs of what is a largely cash-based economy, they needed just more money. They were using it to pay salaries. Obviously, most people would be aware of the, the effects that that produces in terms of inflation. Um, and so the response from Houthi government to those controlling Sana'a said that they they were not actually going to allow the use of these new bills. And so initially you had Yemenis all over the country who, who were kind of swapping out their old bills for the new bills, assuming that you know, they, this was the new bill. But then as of January, the Houthi said that the new bills were not going to be accepted anymore. So then you had people trying to very quickly swap back out for the old bills and not getting as much value for them. And then as time has gone on, we have seen the Adani government continue to, to print these new bills, but now we, now they're operating at, at a different, um, exchange rate, essentially, that that the value of the Adani Real has essentially collapsed because they can, they're just continuing to print them. Whereas in Sana'a, the Houthis are trying to maintain the value by keeping the supply relatively limited. But again, that's a problem when people just don't have money. And we are just seeing prices continue to go up and up and people just don't don't have money. I mean, and, and, and based on on what you said before, it seems that the actual physical condition of the money in the North operated by the Sanat Central Bank is sort of old and falling apart, whereas Aden has these sort of crisp new reals. Right, right, exactly. And so it makes sense why initially people thought, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'd like to get, get some of that, <laughs> the new money that isn't falling apart. Um, but then, then suddenly learning that actually they had to to reverse that and and again this is a population that is already on the edge i mean these are people who don't have enough to eat there's not you know there's not enough food coming in already you know we can get into the details of this but just essentially the ways that the houthis have been um preventing aid getting into their areas or just in general i mean when aid is not getting in the the places where people are most food insecure is where the violence is worst. 
So although certain actors, and in particular the Houthis, are actively preventing the aid, in general, people are at their work, um, are experiencing the worst conditions where violence is preventing any sorts of, of resources from flowing in, which is often what happens in conflict zones. Um, but, but it is also important to, to point out that it, this was why initially uh, the United States government had cut off aid to Houthi areas um, last year under Trump because there were concerns about the fact that the Houthis were taking food aid or other types of aid, using it for their own purposes, not distributing it. And, and so then subsequently we saw that decision and the very final days of the Trump administration to, to designate the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, which was one of the, the very first things that, that President Biden did was to overturn that decision, just knowing the effects that that would have, that then that would have meant that aid groups could no longer even interact with the Houthis because to do so would put themselves at risk of, you know, legal risk and, and just interacting with a terrorist organization. Yeah, I remember um, there's this general kind of freak out by humanitarian organizations and the UN in general, when this idea of designating the Houthis a uh, terrorist group was uh, floated and then enacted in the last days of the Trump administration, then a, a giant sigh of relief when the Biden administration overturned that. You mentioned earlier that, you know, the, the central bank in Aden, the, the, internationally recognized government central bank has been you know printing money like crazy causing inflation to soar making food prices out of reach for for many people i'm wondering though does the central bank print money and cause this kind of inflation as like a way to sort of weaponize inflation against their rival central bank or people in who decontrolled territories is there like an aspect of that to this as well that, that may be part of it. It may also just be more aimed actually at Saudi Arabia. I mean, at least what, um, what has been reported by Reuters and others was that the Aden government had said that it had, quote, full confidence, end quote, that Saudi Arabia would intervene before the economy collapsed. Um, and unfortunately, this is what we've seen over and over again in Yemen, where everything is already stretched um, really to the breaking point and then and then it goes even further and then the hope is that that someone will kind of step in and do something and so we saw this um, prior to the the concerns about um, what would have been likely a bloodbath in terms of trying to control the port of Hudeda which led to the Hudeda agreement and then there have been various um, expressions of dissatisfaction since then that neither side have really stuck to the terms of the agreement. Um, but I, and I think it's just a case in Yemen of just sort of the international community's fatigue with everything that's happening and sort of just a willingness like Everyone or everyone who's paying any attention is aware of the fact that this is the world's worst humanitarian crisis, that it has been so for years, that things just keep getting worse. And so I, I could imagine uh, the Adani government in desperation trying to maybe not so much weaponize this against the Houthis, um, 
although they might be doing that, but but also to to sort of force the Saudis to step in and do something or to do more. And it's also to be noted that the central bank in Aden has access to international markets, like theoretically, like the IMF could intervene, whereas it could not in, in Sana'a. Right, exactly. And, you know, and this just gets to these ongoing cries from groups like the World Food Program or the UN, you know, just, just various humanitarian organizations that have been calling for more global aid to make it into Yemen and just consistent shortfalls in what these organizations um, are, are saying is necessary in order to keep existing programs going, to keep existing aid flows going, and then the international community not providing that. And on the other hand, there, there, is, there are plenty of critiques from Yemenis themselves that they want a viable economy. They don't want the international community to just pump in aid money and to have Yemen just becoming increasingly dependent on foreign aid as opposed to having a viable economy. Um, but in, in general, you know, the, that's what these groups their purpose is to try to prevent starvation and, and to keep people alive when they're in under great distress. So it's understandable that they continue to pursue their mandate. Um, but I do think in general, this is the tragedy of Yemen is that it's, it's, not, it's not a famine that's caused by drought, um, although Yemen is experiencing acute climate stress and water stress. Um, and all of these, everything is is getting worse as a result of, of climate change. Um, however, these are man-made problems that Yemen certainly was a, already a very fragile country prior to the war and did need assistance. But the problems that we've seen under the war were not created by natural phenomena. These are man-made choices and, and men specifically, I'm saying men, could make different choices. Um, yes, a hurricane did not cause two rival central banks using inflationary <laughs> pressures to starve the population. Exactly. These, these were deliberate choices. So, I mean, going forward, the fact that we have these two rival banks is you know, just one layer on top of an already complex conflict. But we have also seen renewed diplomatic momentum, at least from the United States in recent months, in seeking to try to, if not end the conflict, at least reduce some of the suffering. Where do things stand in terms of progress towards some sort of diplomatic resolution? Um, unfortunately, progress has really stalled. Um, and I, I had a, a piece that I published in June where I wrote about the fact that Washington essentially has Yemen policy backwards. That when we saw Saudi Arabia, for example, pushing for a ceasefire or the U.S. pushing for a ceasefire, this is all carried out under the auspices of U.N. Resolution 2216, which was passed in the spring of 2015, not long after the, the Houthis took over Sana'a, and President Hadi requested international intervention to help reinstate him. And so uh, under 2216, the Houthis essentially have to give up all of the territory they acquired since 2014 and lay down all their weapons. And 
certainly that is a reasonable uh, thing for the international community to have demanded at the time. But at this point, it's just not realistic. The Houthis control uh, and approximately 70% of the population, um, although only about 30 or so percent of, of Yemen's territory. Um, and they're simply not going to give up what they have gained. And this is why they continue to push. They see violence as working for them. And essentially, violence has worked for them. Negotiations um, are not going to, to be successful until the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the international community bring the Houthis terms that they are willing to accept. As I said in the piece, you, you can't really dictate maximalist terms to a group that see themselves as the victors. And so the Houthis just have no incentive to engage with any of these ceasefire proposals because they the terms are just unacceptable to them. And so I think what's really important when we see efforts by Tim Lenderking. Um, He's the uh, U.S. envoy for Yemen. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's great that President Biden appointed him. Um, but essentially, he's just reaffirming U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and the Saudi position that they have to maintain this blockade of Yemen. I mean, the blockade of Yemen in particular, I think, is the most egregious example of how the international community is is really in the wrong here because we're allowing and, and the U.S. in particular is continuing to support Saudi Arabia preventing fuel from getting into Yemen. Also food, but but essentially even when they let in food, if there's no fuel to, to transport it into the country, it doesn't matter. It, it rots um, on the ships and on the boats or on, on the trucks. Um, and that the UN already has a UN mechanism in place to inspect ships coming into the port of Hodeida, which is controlled by the Houthis. And it doesn't need Saudi Arabia to impose additional restrictions or, or additional oversight on those ships, but that's what Saudi is doing. And it is legitimized in doing so by resolution 2216. Mm. So in the piece, I argue that we need the UN Security Council to push a new resolution that actually incentivizes the Houthis to come to the table. And most importantly, that incorporates many different actors. I mean, this, this conflict is not just between the Hadi government and the Houthis. We have, there was an excellent article published by Nadwa Dawsari, the middle, um, who is of the Middle East Institute for the Century Foundation called um, Fantasies of State Power Cannot Solve Yemen's War, where she just goes through all of the splintering of power and just lays out the extent to which Yemen has completely fractured. And so thinking that we can kind of put Yemen back together again, just by getting the, the Houthis and the, the Saudis to agree to a ceasefire and then getting the Southern Transitional Council and the Houthis to agree to a ceasefire or getting Tariq Saleh to agree, like all, it's just, and, and so, you know, that does a great job explaining how there, there is there is nothing there really to put back together again, and the international community needs to to evolve in its approach to Yemen. I mean, at least from where I sit at this point, there does not seem to be much momentum towards rethinking the UN Security Council's role in uh, 
conflict resolution in Yemen at the moment. I mean, is there any diplomatic momentum towards that end or any political momentum uh, towards rethinking the Security Council's role in Yemen at this point? I mean, I think the momentum, at least where I sit in Washington, is around Yemen amendments for the National Defense Authorization Act, saying that the U.S. will no longer provide any sort of support for Saudi aggression, which is what Biden said he was going to do, but then we didn't really see policies shifting. Um, However, what we've seen in the past with the NDAA is that the Yemen amendments end up getting stripped out. Um, So my organization is trying to work on keeping those amendments in the NDAA. And if they do end up getting stripped out, then pushing for members of Congress to introduce a war powers resolution to really push the Biden administration to withdraw any kind of support for Saudi aggression against Yemen. Um, However, you know, I, I do think that going through the UN would be a a very important pathway. Um, Are you right that I I don't know that there's a whole lot of momentum there, but I think that's because, you know, Linda Thomas Greenfield is going to advance what, you know, whatever message she's getting from the Biden team. Um, And so far the Biden team is really just sticking to its position of supporting Saudi Arabia, which means continuing to to fight back against the Houthis. Um, And I mean, in general, I think this speaks to a broader issue that the United States, that we see over and over again in American foreign policy, where if there's a government or a group in a country that the U.S. doesn't like, we as, as a country have often intervened to try to get rid of them. So we saw that obviously in Afghanistan and Iraq, We saw efforts towards that, although not a full-blown invasion in Libya and Syria. And we're seeing now that the U.S. doesn't like the Houthis, doesn't like the fact that the Iranians are helping them, um, and so is going along with this Saudi effort to prevent them from from further consolidating what power they already have. And in the future, what we've seen, the results of these efforts by the United States to try to reinstate or to remake uh, a government from scratch leads to chaos. And I think in general, the United States and Saudi Arabia need to restore um, just an understanding that it's it's people on the ground in these countries that have the right to national self-determination and to their own sovereignty. And that it's really not up to the United States or any other country to tell another people what kind of government they should have. And so to be clear, I mean, the Houthis engage in all kinds of horrible abuses. I personally do not like the idea of the Houthis having control in Yemen, but it's it's not up to me and it's not up to the U.S. and it's not up to Saudi Arabia. It should be up to the Yemeni people. Uh, Well, Anel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Anel Sheline for describing that odd situation of Yemen's rival central banks and how that fits into broader conflict dynamics in Yemen. And of course, I will commit to continuing to cover this crisis for as long as I have the podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.